0: Okay, so today we're uh, back in here Conversations, if you've not been before. The way Conversations works, we have different topics, I have a panel, then we talk about the topics, and then you talk to the panel and to each other about the topic, and we just kind of see where our time takes us. And so today, our topic is hell. No one has an opinion about hell, so this should be a pretty easy Sunday morning, wait, that's not true at all. Uh, there's actually a lot of people who are often talking about uh, hell, uh, which is fascinating. We talk more about hell than we do about heaven. I don't know. That could say something about more about us than about topics. But anyway, uh, we're talking about hell today, and I'm excited for this panel. I think they're going to help us navigate the waters. And here's the reality of, this, of our series here in Conversation. The goal of conversations is not to give you a nice little bow on the whatever the topic is. We don't have enough time to put a nice bow on things, nor is that ever been the goal ever will be the goal of our time when we do conversations. The goal of our time in here is to help us think critically and deeply about all of these different topics as people of faith. Um, The culture is often talking about a lot of these topics, whether it is kind of the micro thing of the Christian culture or the larger, kind of like just general culture at large. So it would do us well in our faith communities to have these kinds of conversations, and to have them often, because this should be essentially a safe space and place for us to talk about anything. That's why we talk about any and everything, because we're not afraid, and we don't live in fear uh, talking about such difficult things. Um, if you're bored, there's donuts. There's another room that you can lay down on the couch. Uh, do what you need to do. There's foosball. Don't play foosball right now. Uh, that would be distracting. But you can play afterwards. You know, which is fine too. Uh, I don't mind if the you know, the big stuff. You do you this. Know, <laughs> but uh, anyway, let's introduce our panel. They're going to introduce themselves, and then once they do that. We'll start here with introductions, go there with any introductions, and then we'll start back with you with opening comments and thoughts, and then we'll end with you opening comments and thoughts. And once these guys have shared what they think about or what their perspective or insight or experience with this particular topic, uh, once they have shared, then we'll turn it over to you all to ask questions, make comments, interact with what Has been said and what you have been thinking on too. And then they'll interact and make comments and respond. Sound good? All right.
1: Uh, I'm Miles Folterman. I'm a member of Parish Presbyterian Church in Franklin. And um, I've been here in Nashville for about 12 years. I've moved away a couple times, but been here off and on for about 12 years. And uh, I'm a physician and I come to conversations when I can.
0: That's that's awesome. my name
2: is Tristan Wheeler. I go to Sparrow Day Church. I'm in grad school right now, getting my Master's of Divinity. I'm married. I just had my second child. It's one month old, so that's mm-hmm. been big. So if I just start babbling incoherently, it's because I'm sleeping like two to three hours at any yeah. time. So that's my excuse today. <laughs> that's good. That's good. That's good. Uh, my name is John Melton. Uh, I'm a
3: uh, commercial insurance agent by day. Uh, I did a uh, I uh, found myself doing that after bailing out of uh, an academic life trajectory, um, did my master's in theology, um, and then thought I wanted to be a high school teacher, so I did a master's in education, and then I taught high school, and realized I did not want to teach high school. <laughs> um, and then I uh, was, was an adjunct professor at Lipscomb for, uh, for a minute, and uh, now I am, um, yeah primarily I just sell insurance every day. so. You need, you got a new car, you got a new house. I know a guy. Oh, um, nice plug. Not, yeah, I mean, yeah. My, I yeah. You, always, gotta, you know, you're in front of some new yeah. faces. The, I, I learned in the Bible that you do not have because you do not ask, right? Mm-hmm. So oh, yeah. You always good. ask. Oh, that's, that's what good. that man. I <laughs> <was> <laughs> wondered what it
0: meant. <laughs> <laughs> and that's why I
3: come to <laughs> Tokyo. Know, oh, yeah, yeah. That's
0: right. That's good. All right. We'll start with you. Opening thoughts, oh, comments? Yeah, that's right. I'm, okay,
3: so. Hell's, uh, maybe not real. We all maybe knew that. How um, I many of you saw A Star Is Born? Hey, listen to the soundtrack. Jason Isbell has a great song on there called Maybe It's Time, and one of the lines is, when I was a child, they tried to fool me, to said the worldly man was lost and that hell is real. But I've seen hell in Reno, and this world is one big old Catherine wheel." Um, you can Google Pathway will. but um, yeah Bible uh, one of my elders at the church that I go to one time said that the Bible talks a lot about heaven but it talks even more about hell false Um, talks about stuff but hell as a specific place in the western mind was shaped more by literary figures than it was by the New Testament. Um, so, we'll discuss that. Okay, thanks. Tristan?
2: Yeah, <clears throat> when Patrick asked me to be on conversations, I was like, yeah, sure, what's the topic? He goes, it's hell. I was like, oh man, i redact the offer. It's, <laughs> that, it's that thing that we all talk about, but then we don't want to talk about, especially in public scenarios, which got me thinking that when we talk about hell, what we're also talking about is fear. And when I think about this idea of fear, I think about uh, if you've ever watched, you know, like any type of pro sporting event, you'll see this team that, like, up until the first half, is just like destroying the other team, and then it's as if they go to the locker room and everyone in the locker room agrees that from now on they should play not to lose, and you see them go out and they start playing, and there's this like fear mindset; they're like afraid of losing the whole time, which is like ultimately what they end up doing. And there's this theologian I love; uh, his name's Peter Enns, and He starts off one of his books, he says, fear must not drive our theology. And one of the reasons I think hell has become so prevalent and with that, the fear component is because fear is a powerful motivator. And fear can get people to be controlled. It can get people to do what you want them to do. And there's a a powerful motivator with fear. But I think we have to ask ourselves, is there maybe something that motivates us better than fear? And I would say that's love. So you see in the New Testament, you see that it says, like, God is love. Love your enemies. And so there's this move from fear, and even you see in later on the New Testament, it says that uh, perfect love casts out fear. Yeah, and so I think there's a sense of we have to move from, like, a theology that is fear-based to a theology that is love-based. And with that, there's no need to be afraid. And you see that sometimes, like I mentioned that analogy, you'll see that team that's, you know, they're afraid of losing, which is what they start doing. And the team that is already lost, no longer has anything to lose and no longer is afraid of losing because the worst things happen and then they start winning. And that to me I think needs to be kind of like a shift for us in the church is to go from this fear of hell to this like love of God which is a more powerful motivator. And I've heard it said that like good healthy religion, bad religion is for people that are afraid of hell and good healthy religion is for people that have been through hell. And so that to me is kind of the push for me is to, to identify the fear component, and move from there. Cool,
0: thanks. Miles.
1: Um Every two years, Ligonier Ministries, uh, based in Florida, conducts uh, what they call a State of Theology Survey, which is um, a survey that um, has been in the United States for the last three years, but is conducted in the UK in 2018 as well. And essentially what they do is they um, ask people, both Christians and non-Christians, what are their beliefs, what are their understandings and conceptions about core um, core elements of Christianity. So uh, the survey is made up of 34 questions, and they relate to things like God, the Bible, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. And um, I would encourage you to look at it online because it has some really interesting results. I think that... Um, If you look at the results for people who do not identify as Christians, you may not be surprised by the results. But if you read the results for people who identify as Christians, you may be kind of surprised by what people believe. So um, I just want to share a few of the results with you. When presented with the statement, Jesus Christ is the only person who never sinned, 74% of Christians said that was true, that they agreed with that, either strongly or somewhat By the way, in the United Kingdom, only one-third of Christians believe Jesus was the only person who never sinned. Um, I'm not sure what's more horrifying, believing that Jesus sinned or that there are people walking around who don't sin. Everyone sins a little, but most people are good by nature. 72% of Christians believe that. Even the smallest sin deserves eternal damnation. 29% of Christians believe That's true. Only 8% of Christians in the United Kingdom believe that. God counts a person as righteous not because of one's works, but only because of one's faith in Jesus Christ. Only two-thirds of Christians believe that. In the United Kingdom, 32%. One-third of Christians believe that people are counted righteous because of Jesus Christ and not because of their own righteousness. And then for our purposes, hell is a real place where certain people will be punished forever. 71% of American Christians believe that's true. 24% of Christians in the UK. By the way, interestingly, the statement, Jesus was resurrected from the dead, 37% of Christians in the United Kingdom believe that's true. So I think, needless to say, what we have is that, what you can tell just from those questions, that's just a sampling of the 34, is that Christians are pretty confused about what they believe. And, um inconsistent and even deceived about a lot of things. And I think that when it comes down to this topic, the things that we need to reckon with are the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity. Those are the two things that we're going to have to reckon with. Um, And we're, just as Christians in general, very deceived and very uh, confused about this matter. So confused in fact that several years ago a pastor wrote a book, well he was a pastor then, he's a former pastor now, stating that only a cruel, mean, vicious tormentor would use hell to punish so severely the finite sins committed by people in a few years on earth. That's perfectly consistent with the statements that I just read you from the Ligonier survey and people believing that essentially people are good, so why would God send people to hell or or punish them eternally for the sins that they committed in just a few short years here on earth? Somebody... uh, at the 2014 Ligonier National Conference, asked R.C. Sproul, who was the head of uh, Ligonier Ministries until he passed away in 2017, they asked, if God is slow to anger and patient, then why, when man first sinned, was his wrath and punishment so severe and long-lasting? And I really love this answer. That God's punishment for Adam was so severe, this creature from the dirt defied the everlasting holy God after God said the day you shall eat of it you shall surely die. And instead of dying that day he actually lived another day and was clothed in his nakedness by pure grace and did have the consequences of a curse applied for quite some time but the worst curse would come upon the one who seduced him whose head would be crushed by the seed of the woman and the punishment was too severe what's wrong with you people? This is what's wrong with the Christian church today. We don't know who God is, and we don't know who we are. The question is, why wasn't God's punishment infinitely more severe? If we have any understanding of our sin, and any understanding of who God is, that's the question, isn't it? Um, I would disagree with John. I think that the reality of hell as it's taught in Scripture is indubitable. I think that when you read the scriptures, it's plain from the testimony of scripture, it's plain from the words of Jesus and his parables and his teachings and his warnings to people who rebel against him, who rebel against God's righteousness. I think it's clear from the testimony of church history. So, why is it that we have so much confusion about the matter? Well, I think it goes back to what I said earlier, which is our failure to reckon with God's righteousness and our sinfulness. We just don't, uh, want to deal with it. We don't have a doctrine of sin. We don't have a doctrine of God that really reckons with what Scripture teaches. We're very casual, very casual about God. Um, you've heard, uh, you you know, I trust that you know that in First John chapter 4 we're taught that God is love. What's the only divine attribute taught in Scripture that's taught to the superlative third degree? Which of God's attributes is taught Three times it's so essential to his character. Holy, holy, holy. Isaiah chapter 6. When the prophet Isaiah is in the throne room of God, he falls on his face. The seraphim are above the throne, and they're crying out, holy, 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 day and night. The earth is filled with his glory. And the prophet falls down and he said, I am undone. For I have unclean lips, and I dwell among people with unclean lips. When God comes in the room in Scripture, people don't say, Hey, God, what's up? How's it hanging? They fall down and want to die because of God's holiness. That's the kind of understanding that we need to have of God, and that's the kind of understanding that's going to help us reckon with responsibly about what we deserve as sinful people. But is there any good news in here? Well, yes, there is. There's absolutely some great news for all of us. Uh, But I think I'll stop there, and maybe we can discuss that in a minute.
0: Cool. Thanks. Alright, we got some good thoughts out there. Let's uh, open it up to you all for your responses or questions or comments, and then we'll have the panel interact with all the things. Go ahead. So, I'd kind
2: of, I guess, like to know all of y'all's position. Do you believe that Jesus is the full,
3: fullest representation that we have of the character and nature of God? and if yes, or I guess if yes or no, and Jesus tells us to forgive 70 times 7, or essentially to never stop forgiving, why or how would God hold us to a standard that He does not hold Himself to? Um, So, part A, yes. Um, And my one of my favorite theologians um and actually one of my least favorite theologians uh dovetail on this point uh my, uh not I, I don't know his favorite I, I tease with that uh he's not really a theologian c.s lewis is a great writer good dude highly recommended stuff um uh, he and uh one of my other uh, my actual favorite guy uh, they say something similar here. They say that, uh, in the end, those who go to heaven, uh, this is Lewis's uh, phrase, those who go to heaven are those who say, to God, thy will be done, and those who go to hell are those to whom God says, thy will be done, right? Um, it has to do with alignment, with the will and purposes, um, a teleological orientation, so you got to have a telos of holiness, holiness not being defined transactionally as... Uh, right, wrong, but in the flowing with the grain of the universe, going with the the direction of creation, uh, aligning yourselves with the intents of God in creation, and becoming the type of person, being habituated into the type of person who is comfortable in the kingdom of God. Um, Those are those who go to heaven. If there is a judgment, if there is a hell, those who would go to there are those who have so accustomed themselves that they would not be comfortable in the kingdom. They live lives of enmity, strife, uh, fear, uh, retaliation, uh, judgment, etc., 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 and not lives of self-sacrifice and love. Um, and those are the Iranian principles that, that, that go behind uh, how how you would adjudicate a judgment. And so, uh, to answer the second part, uh, those those guys are what I think they're trying to say is. Yeah, I think God is infinitely forgiving, but there's still room for a judgment in the world where a God is infinitely forgiving, because God is not ultimately going to force you to be kind, of, become the kind of person who is going to feel at home in His kingdom. He will honor your decision,
2: um, and so uh, that's kind of my response. Yeah. There's a there's an Episcopal priest that I really like in um in one of his sermons he talks about the day of judgment and he talks about how this idea that both heaven and hell are full of forgiven sinners and uh so he talks about on the day of judgment he says you stand before god he says and his name is robert capon he says so i'll stand before god and jesus will present me to god he says here is robert what do you think of him and god will say perfect just how i always imagined And robert says and if i don't like that i can go to hell but not the other way around. And then he goes on to say that perhaps hell is Jesus per like permanently knocking at the door, which you kind of mentioned early on. So the early church, this is was their view of purgatory, was the sense of that God is still trying to reach out to these people that you still had time even after death. And I I love your point on like needing like a good view on like our sin and God's holiness because. So often I feel that in theology, we've, we've lost good language for the power of sin. I think one of the areas that we fall in, and the famous uh, Scottish philosopher, John Dun Scottis, would say that if we get this wrong, then we give sin the highest attribute and not God's holiness or God's love, that God was not free to act, that God was actually in response to sin the whole time. So there's there's this uh, controversial artist in the 80s, and he created this... Uh, this piece, and even the name was meant to be kind of blasphemous, but the name was pissed Christ, and he took a photo of Jesus on the crucifixion, and they put it in a, a tub of urine, and it was decided to scandalize, to create blasphemy. And one of my favorite theologians, he talks about that perhaps our problem here is that we attribute the problem, we attribute the, the highest strength is to sin and not to Christ's holiness. So since I think sin is the strongest and has the last word on on the factor and not that it was Jesus. And this way you see in the New Testament the Pharisees is they're like, you are associating with these people that sin will rub off on you, that sin will contaminate you. When we look at the Old Testament, like you mentioned Isaiah, God's holiness purifies and erases the sin. Is that the to me the power belongs to God's holiness, not to our sinfulness? And that, that's what gets the last word is that purifies us.
1: Um, So what I would encourage you, Justin, is to kind of think of it the other way around. You're saying, you know, if we understand at the human level that we're supposed to forgive someone who sins against us 70 times, 7 times, then how is it that God doesn't seem to meet that standard to some people who would say that he's going to send people to hell to suffer eternal conscious punishment? So I would encourage you to think of it the other way around. It's not our standard that we then extend to God. It's God's standard that comes down to us. So I know you're familiar with the parable of the unforgiving servant. So he was, he was forgiven a debt, uh, a, not an insignificant debt, but a small, relatively small debt, 100 denarii. And then he goes to his fellow servant who owes him uh, 10,000 talents, which is a significant amount of money, 200,000 years of, of um, uh, salary is what that is. So significantly larger than what he owed. His debt was forgiven, the first servant, the small debt. But then he wouldn't forgive his his uh, fellow servant's debt. And so when the master came, he said that you've been forgiven something small and you wouldn't forgive your neighbor. And then he throws him into prison and says you won't be let out until you've paid every last penny of the debt that you owe. So the 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 fulcrum of that parable is the the forgiveness that the first servant had received. He had received great forgiveness. And so... God has forgiven in Christ. That's the thing. He's the just and justifier, as Romans chapter 3 says. He is both just in punishing sin, but he punishes sin in Christ. He's the justifier because he justifies us through Christ's uh, sacrifice, through his atonement on the cross. I recognize that not everyone accepts penal substitutionary atonement. I do. But but that's how he can be both just and justifier and be merciful uh, as well. And the Jesus who taught that you should forgive someone who sins against you 70 times 7 times said that he who sins is a slave to sin and has no place in my Father's house. And he said that if unless you believe who I say I am, you will die in your sin. So um, I think that some of the problem comes that from the fact that you know, maybe when we read Scripture, we, we, the things that we hope are there kind of pop out to us and then maybe we gloss over the things that we don't like. We have to take the whole testimony of Scripture. And um, this is not just with regard to Jesus versus Paul or Jesus versus Peter or something like that. We find a lot of uh, words of warning in uh, Jesus' earthly ministry. Um, One thing that was mentioned was standing before God and being declared perfect. You will not be declared perfect unless you're clothed with the righteousness of Christ. Um, R.C. Sproul, the pastor I mentioned earlier, To kind of get to people's basic understanding of Christianity, he asked them the question, when you stand before God on the day of the Lord, when you stand in judgment, why will you tell Him that you deserve entry into His fellowship for eternity? And if you say anything other than that you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, you're headed to hell. And that's just something we have to reckon with. We have to be clothed in Christ's righteousness, the only perfect person who ever lived. Which is why that question I mentioned earlier was so important. It's bizarre to me that so many Christians could not accept that Jesus Christ is the only perfect person to ever live. What other questions? Go ahead. So, I mean, on
0: the channel, there are, like, different ideas
4: of, like, does hell
0: actually exist, or, like, does it exist in, like, the way that it's been described. So, how, like, I guess to you, too, like, how do you imagine how to like
4: believe that it exist, and, like, how
1: do you reconcile sort of different references in the Old
0: Testament to like Sheol, which is just like a general upper land epithet to like later Philip's and his type judgment? John, do you want to go first? Can
1: I go last this time? Yeah, last this time. <laughs> go first. Okay. Um, can I restate the question? Just um, How do you reckon with you, what, what would be our individual understandings of what, what hell is um, based on the testimony of Scripture? Uh, maybe apparent divergences in Old and New Testaments. So um, there there doesn't seem to be a... Um, the, the doctrine of hell in the Old Testament is not as developed as the doctrine of hell in the New Testament. Um, but th- that's not problematic. I think for some people that is that seems to be problematic, but I don't think it is because we, of course, are familiar with the doctrine of progressive revelation. I mean, the fullness of the person of Jesus, you find it in seed form even back as far as Genesis chapter 3 when Adam and Eve are promised that they'll have a redeemer that will come and crush the serpent's head. But you would be very, uh, you'd have to be very creative to draw from that passage the full understanding of the person of Christ. Um, So that's just in seed form. And uh, I would approach hell the same way. I would say, you know, you certainly find passages like in Daniel chapter 12 that say that there will be a resurrection that some people would be resurrected to glory and others to eternal shame Um, but in the New Testament you find it very well developed in Jesus' preaching uh, where he talks about it as a place of darkness, a place of separation uh, a place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth Um, I'm sure you're familiar with the parable of Lazarus and the rich man and um, the rich man can't cross the chasm to go into the comfort of Abraham's bosom because um, he's gone away to eternal punishment. Um, so those are some of the images that you find in Scripture. Scripture, um, you know, Jesus certainly uses the image of, well, Scripture uses the image of fire, darkness, um, separation from the kingdom of God. You'll find it in Revelation. The The, the dogs are outside the wall of the kingdom. Um, so there are a lot of different images I You know, if you were going to take it in the most literal sense, how can it be fiery and yet dark at the same time? I think that that's probably carrying it a little bit, carrying the description a little bit too far, or at least not reading it according to the literature, you know, that's being presented there. But I think that no matter what the um, what particular descriptors are used, we know that it's going to be a place of 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 suffering, a place where. people are not going to be happy. <laughs> Maybe to put it in a very, you know, flippant way.
2: William Blake, he says, we are put on this earth so that we might bear the beams of love. And I think about that because when Jesus begins to announce the kingdom of heaven, he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And it's this really difficult tension we live in. I was talking to a friend about this last night where the kingdom of heaven is like both now and not yet. And we're asked to participate in this, where Jesus is saying, like, kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as I was seeing all this, it also, to me, seems to say, like, and so is the kingdom of hell. You know, we could say that there's two types of kingdoms. We, we understand this better with, like, citizenship. My sister was born in New Zealand, and so she always rubbed in my face that she had dual citizenship. She was like, you're just an American. And I was like, you lived there two weeks and you have dual citizenship. And uh, I lived there two years and nothing. Uh, but she was like, I have dual citizenship. And we are in like a similar place where we're like, we are citizens on this earth, but we were also citizens of the kingdom of heaven. But we can, I think, easily become like what we could consider like citizens of hell. And Saint Ignatius, he was this uh, brilliant mystic, but he would talk about this idea of consolation and desolation. And it wasn't that like consolation was happy feeling and desolation was negative feeling. But he would say, consolation is whenever you grow in faith, whenever you grow in hope, whenever you grow in love. He says, desolation is when you feel like the absence of God's presence, when you are selfish, when you are like lazy, when you're slothful, when you're greedy. And so for me, thinking back to this William Blake quote, like, we are put on this earth to participate in the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven, to grow in love, to grow in faith, to grow in hope. And so when we talk about hell, I think one of the reasons this topic is so interesting is because we don't know for certain. Like the Bible speaks in a lot of metaphors, both for heaven, for hell, and in parables and stories. And and metaphors have a way of capturing the imagination in ways that like literal truths do not. And so we get curious, I think, about what hell will be like. And I think for me it comes back to that fear mindset because like we're afraid of going there. And so with that, there's a sense of like I don't know what hell would look like, and nobody does, but I think about, to me, heaven is a place where we continue to grow in the attributes of, like, faith, hope, and love. And um, some theologians even talk about that that's why love is the only one that remains, because in heaven you no longer need faith or hope. It's just love. And to me, hell is a place where you continue careening away from the presence of God, away from hope, away from faith, away from love, away from these characteristics that embody, like, the holiness and beauty of God. And So as to what it looks like, I don't know, but that would be my understanding of it
3: um, I don't believe in a literal hell um, I think the Bible uses a lot of metaphor um, and uh, imagery uh, t- to paint a picture um, I also think that uh, and, and this is I don't know I'm just going to open up some worms. open them up, up and, I'll end soon and then the worms just be out uh, so, I, I try to nurture a pretty healthy agnosticism about the metaphysical side of all this stuff. It's just not knowable. You can believe it, but it's just not knowable. And there's uh, there's probably a reason that the Bible was written the way it was written and not written as a science book. It's not meant to be dissected forensically like that. Um, and so that's a, it's an abusive way to approach a text. In the same way I wouldn't use a phone book to try to make brownies, I'm not gonna use the Bible as you know, a metaphysical text about the ultimate state of reality that is broken down into discrete pieces that I can understand and know. Um, it was written for a pre-scientific community. I can talk to my watch. That's where we're at in life. (laughs) We understand things that they didn't understand. Um, Literacy exists at rates never before thought possible until about 600, 700 years ago. Um, So should we look at this ancient text full of metaphor and imagery and say, this sets down in concrete terms what ultimate reality looks like? Uh, Ultimate reality, by the way, that no one has ever seen, tested, uh, examined in any way, and is is not examinable? Um, I don't think so. Um, I think that the imagery and metaphor is designed to motivate. In the same way, Tristan was talking about in his opening statement, the fact that uh, fear is kind of this dichotomy between fear and not fear between fear and boldness, right? The Bible says you've not been given a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, and you know, sound mind. Um, and so I think a lot of the motivational stuff about uh, resurrection, heaven, hell, uh, those are designed uh, to create things for our brains to hang on to so that we can understand why we ought to live so fundamentally different from the world? Which is the big question. Because it'll get you killed. If you refuse to kill those who are going to kill you, it'll get you killed. And if you have to hang on to something like the hope of the resurrection or the life of the age to come, then that can be a really helpful motivator for you. If you need to hang on to the idea that Killing people is wrong, and if I do something wrong, and they to go to hell. That can be a healthy motivator for you, I guess. Uh, but ultimate realities, I just try to help nurture a healthy agnosticism about things that I know I can't know, and double down on the things that are pretty clear, which is love those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, bless those who wish all kinds of evil against you, uh, do not return evil for evil. Um, live differently uh, in the midst of this world that is ordered by darkness and death and decay in such a way as to represent an incoming new way of life a way of life that no one imagined possible until jesus announced his ministry and lived out this way of life Um,
0: yeah, that's good. All right, oh, ooh. you're gonna hate this. I have to, I'm about to land this plane as <laughs> awkward as it is. So, here's what I'll do I'll let you say your questions, and then we're gonna hear quick, you gotta hear quick, final comment. And the order we're gonna go in is we'll start with Miles, then we'll go to John, then we'll end with Tristan. So, you can say, so. Maybe you get to this, and maybe you don't. But let's hear from both of you, and then we'll we'll land the plane and pray for, for our turns for minutes. Um, so my question kind of ties in with her question, and I think it's mainly for you. Um,
2: but like we see, like a different idea of scripture, and you're you're talking about it being progressive. But uh, I feel like what's forgotten is part of the imagery and the development of. The New Testament idea of hell comes from extra biblical sources, like the Book of Enoch, right? Um, so I, I'm just wondering, like, how am I supposed to trust the New Testament
0: idea of hell when it comes from these places outside the Bible? Okay. on that? So for you. Okay. Right, so <coughs>
4: mine's not a question; it's just kind of comments. Oh, that's great. But um, I guess what I appreciate about um, you had like to say is taking sin seriously i think i think part of the disconnect here i find is that i think generally speaking most people i know think most people are generally good and so we feel like god is making a really you know making a mountain out of a molehill type stuff or like okay i like lied that one time is that deserving of help and um or you know i lied 100 times, but is that deserving of hell? Like shouldn't God just forgive me anyways? Which I think is why I like to gravitate towards, you know, uh, Paul's message of like, should we go on sinning so that grace might abound? Like, you know, it's kind of like, Okay, are we just gonna take for granted that? Like, God will forgive me. God's a nice person, I guess. So, um, You know, I, I feel like there's a lot to be said and like, and I even am reminded that like the image of purgatory, For you know most of history wasn't that this was a place some people go it was a place most people go Because the idea is like sin has so stained our souls that you need purgatory to purify that like Only this really saintly people who are recognized as such just got to go straight to heaven You know the idea is like we've been affected by sin This has to be removed before we can be in God's presence And so I think that's kind of Important to keep in mind because I find that just in today's culture we're so willing to be like you know you just have to be nice to people and you know we're all generally good that like it's easy to then be like hell seems a bit dramatic for for that sort of thing but I also want to keep in mind that like I feel like we also or at least I have struggled with it is because we kind of feel like we don't want to put that on other people like I don't want to just be like oh this person's going to hell casually Um, and so I think. I think what I found helps is kind of wrestling with the like, you know, the desire and hope that everyone might get to go to heaven, but also like reconciling the fact that some people might not. And that like, you know, if we trust God to be who the Bible says God is, that like God will make the right decision. I don't think God's going to take throwing people in hell lightly. Like, if people end up there, I don't think it's going to be like, well, you messed up a couple too many times. So, I just think that's important to keep in mind, too, because I think it it doesn't really, like, make hell seem nicer. It's just kind of, like, reminding ourselves of, like, the big picture of, like, sin is, like, a, a really, you know, substantial thing. And also, we can trust God to make the
0: right decision in these matters. That's good. Okay. So, quick... Final thoughts. Here, here, we here
1: we go. Quick comment to respond to you. I would not describe the New Testament as depending on intertestamental literature for these descriptors, but it, that it helps put it in context. What these things mean when we read them in the New Testament. That, so that's a quick response. I'm sorry I wish I could say more, but um, so a comment was made about metaphysical speculation about resurrection-related topics. And uh, you may remember in uh, Matthew chapter 22, the Sadducees come to Jesus and they present him with this dilemma about a woman who's married to multiple brothers. And who's she going to be married to in the afterlife? Well, they don't have a particular concern about that. They just want to make his uh, belief about a resurrection to seem stupid and ridiculous, like he's some sort of hasty. How does he answer them? He says, you're wrong because you know neither the power of God nor the scriptures. That's how he starts off his critique. So if you don't know the power of God and you don't know the scriptures, you're not going to be able to appropriately deal with with the doctrines of judgment, the doctrines of the holiness of God, the sinfulness of humanity. So that's where you have to start. And that goes back to what I was saying earlier about that's what we have to reckon with before we get started at all. I did mention I wanted to... S- share some good news with you. It's it's not just all doom and gloom. So what's the good news? Well, despite the fact that James says that if you if you stumble on even one part of the law, you're guilty of breaking it all. Despite the fact that Paul says that Um, We are dead in sins and trespasses, despite the fact that, as I mentioned earlier, Jesus said, if you don't believe who I say I am, you will die in your sins, despite the fact that he says that if you you sin, you're a slave to sin, and you have no place in my Father's house, there is good news, and that is what I mentioned earlier, that God is just and the justifier through Christ Jesus, which is in his grace alone. It's by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it's the work of God so that no one may boast. Go with that.
3: John, Um. Yeah, intertestamental, uh, intertestamental stuff is weird. Um, uh, Jesus uh, talks uh, a, a lot of metaphors, and if you can uh, do some studying about best ways to understand those. Um, yeah. All
2: right. That's all good. Yeah. We, we, we've said a lot. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, uh, you quoted it, should we continue in sin that grace may abound? And... I think sometimes you'll see that people that maybe take hell less seriously take sin less seriously and to me I'm serious about sin because it's about as much fun as putting your face into a meat grinder you know like ultimately it's not enjoyable you know Um, but for me there's a sense of like it has the first word the middle word and the last word have to be grace it has to start with grace and that's like the purpose of the law the law shows us that like we cannot achieve it on our own ends. This is on like like gospel of willpower, but the gospel of Jesus good news that like Jesus has already done for us what we cannot do for ourselves. And so for me, it's grace. So I'm reminded of the story. as I want to wrap up it. Brendan Manning tells in the Ragamuffin Gospel of there is this woman that said she was having visions of Jesus and. So the bishop went to inspect, and the bishop asked her, and he said, okay, next time you have one of these visions of Jesus, I want you to ask him what the last sin was that I committed. And the, the woman says, oh, bishop, I cannot do that. And he was like, no, no, like, I want you to ask him. Ask him what was the last sin that I committed. And she's like, all right, you say so. And so a couple of months go by, and then she finally calls the bishop, and she's like, I had another one of those visions with Jesus. And the bishop was like, all right, did you ask him the question? She's like, I asked him what you told me to ask him. I said, what was the last sin that you committed? The bishop like leaned forward and he's like, what did he say? And she said, and she just said, I can't remember. And that to me is the sense of like what grace and forgiveness is. It's like a God that like loves unconditionally. And so when we have our sins before God, God is like, I've already forgiven this sin. Like it's a God that forgives, that shows grace. This is not to belittle sin, but it's to magnify the love and holiness of God.
0: Let's give a round of applause. Thank you.